time to say goodbye. Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It's June 14th, Sunday. Um, you will probably be listening to this on a Monday or a Tuesday given the slowness of our process, but we think that, uh, you know, we're trying to make the show a little bit more up-to-date and timely, and so uh, I'm here as always with Andy and Tammy. How are you guys doing? Good, how are you? I'm okay. It's like, it actually rained here last night, which followed like eight, I think about eight days where the temperature was in the 80s, which I also think was helping people go out to a lot of the protests that were here. But today it's raining and I imagine that that puts a damper on things. Although I did see this video of Seattle where they had 60,000 people in the rain. Oh, wow. Um, so maybe it isn't. The people there are more used to it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, you two as, as native Seattleites, uh, although I would say, you know, neither of you from the city mm-hmm. itself, but within the surrounding areas, right, right, like within regime-occupied territories <laughs> yeah. of, the, of the megaplex of the Seattle tech and aer- aeronautics and, uh, you know, Windows 95 uh, regime like what do you see are you surprised by by Seattle's centrality in these protests like th- does it surprise you to see that Seattle is is going out this hard every single day um I'm surprised I guess no I'm well I'm surprised by the entire national movement and so where things are cropping up are I guess now not a surprise to me but I I think um you know, Seattle having a sort of release valve moment makes a lot of sense, given how much weird class and corporate crap has been going on there for so many years. Okay, but Seattle is like 6% black, right? Mm-hmm. It, is, mm-hmm. it, is a, it is a very white city. Um, there are a lot of Asian people in Seattle, but um, there, you know, I think it's something like 20%. But it's not even like other cities where if you look at the population and then you zoom out a little bit then you find pockets of of uh of black people in the suburbs or excerpts like seattle the entire area is pretty white you know like so are are you are you surprised by by how how many of these protests are happening and how central the uh the sort of actions on the street are i mean i feel like seattle at this point this week at least is the place where i think the most marches happen the most people i think the news has um glommed onto Seattle this last week. I don't know if I would call them central. I think it's kind of doing its own thing, but I, I'm not sure they're um, kind of like leading the charge in terms of, like you're saying, uh, like a Black Lives Matter, from like a Black Lives Matter perspective. My, I, I talked to my friend Josh over there, and we might play audio from him later. I think he, he was kind of saying like a lot of it is um, just kind of like anger in general. And people also like angry at the government, angry at corporations, and also angry specifically at the stay in place um, uh, orders of the last few months and angry at the mayor there. Um, and I think people are making sort of perhaps mental connections to the Black Lives Matter stuff in the rest of the country. But I, I almost think it's very different. Like I was in Philadelphia yesterday and I was just imagining what it was like to be in Seattle. And be, like you were saying, there'd be completely different demographics, right? Like Philadelphia is almost 50% black. It's very working class all throughout the scene there I cannot have imagined ever taking place um, in Seattle. I think in Seattle, uh, you know, to be... Yeah, okay, also, but to be fair, like, the numbers of people who are out in Seattle are much higher 
than in a lot of other places, except maybe Philadelphia over the past couple of days in Atlanta, but certainly more than you know here in the Bay Area, right. which, which has a much larger black population and a deeper, right. in many ways, uh, history of anti-police activism, um, certainly more than LA has been, you know, and I don't, I, I think that maybe leadership is the wrong word, but just like how many people keep going out in Seattle specifically, the only reason I ask is not because it's the Seattle podcast, but because I think it is an interesting question, like you brought up, Andy, of why people are out there and, uh, and is and is it bad if people are making the connections that you said they're making? You know, is it bad if they say our mayor kept us inside too long um, and that proves that the state is too strong, you know, that it has too much influence, that uh, tech workers are allowed to work from home, but other people aren't? I'm mad about that. Like, are those bad connections to make at this point? I mean, no, but also I don't want us to go too far in the other direction where we erase black histories and anti-police histories in Seattle because they do exist. There are still black neighborhoods in South Seattle, in South King County, all the way into Pierce County. And like the DSA has a strong black presence. So there are there have been things going on. There's also been major police reforms, both in the Seattle Police Department and King County Sheriff's over the years. So this is not a place that where this is entirely new and disconnected from Black Lives Matter. But yes, I think it's great if people are also drawing these other connections. And I know there's been some friction among activists there already about to what extent is this a Black Lives Matter movement? Or is it a movement yeah. can, that can also incorporate previous economic justice demands like taxing Amazon and stuff? And all of yeah. these debates will continue to roil. And, you know, I think that's good. I think that's productive. Yeah. Yeah, I watched this video and I think I'll play the audio of it. And it's something that I want us to respond to because, you know, it's of the night when people, when Kashama Sawant let people into, protesters into City Hall. And yeah. so you have these scenes of people chanting in City Hall, the places swarmed. And then a, a young black woman stands up and says, you know, and, and it's very, you know, it's upsetting to watch in a sense because she keeps apologizing. You know, she keeps saying, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but. And what she's saying is that she feels like when people are chanting tax Amazon, which they did, I'm sure at the behest of Shama, of Shama yeah. in some ways, right, that 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 it's not time for that yet. You know, that it's that there's still a question of, of, of black lives, of, of police justice. You know, Breonna Taylor's uh, killers are still, mm-hmm. still haven't been arrested. You know, and that, that, that all the, every time she goes out to a action in the Seattle area, the same thing happens. Right. You know, that white voices go straight to the front. And I don't, it, it's, uh, you know, I, we'll, we'll play a little bit of it here. Just be conscious of that. I'm tired of white people talking to me. I love you guys. You guys are all my eyes and I love you all. But it's something I haven't heard before. I just, I'm tired of white people talking to me. I would love for all the black people to talk up here. I'm really sorry. Also, for all the council member affiliates, please stop using Black Lives Matter for your political campaigns. I'm really sorry. I want to do all these things too. But this is not a movement for you to place, for you to be politically active, for you to be politically correct, and for you to gain all these votes. Please stop taking advantage of us. I'm really sorry. Okay, uh, Tam, what do you what, what do you think about that? Do you think that it's it's still too early 
for things like tax Amazon to become the central part of the of the movement in, in a place like Seattle? Yeah. So I don't not being there, I don't know what the exact breakdown is in terms of like why that is being articulated for people who don't know Shama Sawant. Shama is a longtime socialist alternative politician who. No, she's a trash. Well, her party is called Socialist <laughs> like, Alternative. So I can like uh, okay, okay, her yeah, yeah, political yeah, yeah. composition is kind of complicated, yeah. but she basically comes from a kind of like Trotskyist yeah. communist tradition in India and her party I would say alongside Bernie Sanders has been like one of the most influential voices in like democratic and socialist politics in the U.S. over the past like decade. And she's a very dogmatic person (laughs) who is very controversial on the left in (laughs) Seattle, even though I think everyone would acknowledge that she's done a lot of good. But she's absolutely obsessed with texting Amazon and rightly so. But, you know, I think the fact that she wielded the keys to City Hall and she's been around a lot is why (laughs) there's been this friction. Um, you know, she, her movement is not like a white movement. She herself is not white, but I agree that there is a frustration and I would totally understand why Black Lives Matter people would feel like, okay, can we just have this one moment and like not just have to always like hinge, like just attach other things to this because they are distinct asks, even though they're wrapped up in a similar vision for the future. The, the two the two rallies I've been to in Philly, the two biggest ones, one was led by Party for Socialism and Liberation. Mm-hmm. The one, other one yesterday was Socialist Alternative. And they were, I think, explicitly Black Lives Matter or you know George Floyd-inspired protests. But they're socialist ones, and all the speakers, almost all of them were black, and they come from, like, North Philly or West yeah. Philly. And I thought it was great, right? And they were, like, not backing down from tying ra- racism to capitalism and talking about the problems in Philly with racism and policing or problems of capitalism. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm, you know, again, like Tammy, I'd like to be there before I comment on this more, but I'm sort of thinking um, I'm more sympathetic to perhaps the idea that we should keep these together and not force this choice between policing issues versus Amazon issues. But Philly is a very specific city with a very specific black Marxist tradition, you know, like all the way I mean, I don't know when it starts, but, you know, it, it, a lot of it is centered in that furniture store, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? And going through health food stores. And then their big public moment is when, like, the when the rap group Dead Prez comes out. And, like, that is sort of the evocation of Marxist. Uh, well, also the move uh, bombing, which, you know, yeah. if people don't know, 35 that, years yeah, ago yeah, was yeah, 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 Black yeah. Separatist Group. Yeah, so that's very, like, that is... You know, I think that is different than Seattle, though, because like like you said, yeah, Philly is 50 percent black. Right. And Seattle is six percent black. And the tax Amazon thing is like a mantra that they just say over and over and over again. You know, and to turn this at this moment into tax Amazon, I do think is, you know, I think it's fucked up. Like, I don't I, I think that there is time for this to move into tax Amazon. But in a place like Seattle, where there is so much energy and where people are out for different reasons, like individually purity testing every <laughs> single white person and CHOP or whatever it's called now, CHAZ, CHOP, the Capitol Hill occupied protest doesn't seem particularly useful. But at the same time, you know, like, I don't know, like moving into the same shit they've been yelling about for the last five years. When there's an right? uprising like, over killing, is, right? Is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, then like then you're just doing the same shit that you did five years for the last five years, and people are gonna get bored and leave, right? Because they're like, I remember this one, <laughs> you know, I've heard this song before. Another Sawant rally. Um, I mean, I, I do think that even yeah, if we, the exactly. thing is, even if we don't say tax Amazon, 
it's it's not like black people in Seattle who are coming out to these things aren't thinking about the economic repercussions of the industries there, right? Like, we don't need to always just rhetorically voice these things without, you know, in order to feel like we have an integrated movement, you know? I agree, yeah. And look, of course, the expansion of Capitol Hill yeah. specifically to house Amazon workers you know, pushed up on the international district, which displaced Asian people, and also the central district, totally. which displaced black people, right? Like, it's so connected. like there is a, there are moments of shared, connected struggle that you can get out of a demand to tax <laughs> Amazon. And yet, just saying, <laughs> just start to yell tax Amazon over and over again, because Shama is there. I don't know, that's the part where I'm just like, all right, listen, guys, you know, like, um, like, we don't have to always... I don't know. If this devolves there down into that sort of stuff, then I'm going to be really disappointed. Um, but right now, it doesn't seem to have. And um, I think this young woman was received with a lot of, you know, like a lot of, like there's nobody standing up and being, you know, like international workers of the world <laughs> right. unite and like streaming her yeah, down. No, Savant, so Savant, good, Savant you know. welcomed what she was yeah. saying. Yeah. She Unlike the uh, Philly DSA statement, Andy, do you want to say a little bit about that? <laughs> so, what's going on with the DSA in Philly? What the hell is their problem? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to, I'm not a member of it, so I don't want to talk, you know, poorly of something I'm not a member of. I had, it was just kind of passed around or discussed in the city that Philadelphia's DSA, I guess, has a reputation for being, um, what it could be vulgarly called like class first, like kind of looking down on, um, race issues. And so they issued a statement on Black Lives Matter. <laughs> sort of. Um, or George George Floyd, sort of, yeah. where they avoided talking about the specifics. I think, I mean, it talked a lot about class struggle, and I think it talked about how capitalism and class struggle manifests itself in racial forms, <laughs> right? But it was written in such a way. It was written in such a way where it was saying, "Look." We're going to try every single way to make a statement about this while saying race yeah. stuff is not real. Right, right. You know, like that race doesn't right. matter. And every sentence was like insultingly written in that way. Like, I don't, I, I, yeah, the, I, I don't think that that is happening yeah. in Seattle. Yeah. Right. You know, and I don't think that, I don't think that Kashama is that, you know, I don't think, in fact, I think that she's probably closer to AOC on some of this stuff where she does acknowledge that, you know, like race and white supremacy exists. For sure. Right. Like she's, um, and that she, well, she, I don't think she would ever talk about her identity in the same way that I, AOC does. I, I think that she also is not going to step in front and say, like, you know, like, this is, you know, like, white people who are poor in the Seattle area are killed, right. too. You know, which is, I think, something that the Philly <laughs> DSA would say. Um, all right. So transitioning. Um, we are doing discrete segments now because we're a professional <laughs> podcast. Uh this is something like I, I this is something that made me laugh, which is that Bloomberg Asia, which I think is a publication, a part of Bloomberg, I imagine, got in a lot of trouble this week amongst the the sort of you know mad Asians because they put out a tweet. Also, mad whites, I would say, who are in support of mad Asians, you know, like food, <laughs> Asian food Twitter. Asian food Twitter is not just is not just Asian people. Anyway, their tweet was: "It's white, it's chewy, and bland." But shoppers are giving tofu a second look. As coronavirus forced meatpacking factory shutdowns, consumers suddenly found them. Wait, whoops. Um, hold on. I can't find the rest of this tweet. Uh, found themselves searching for alternative sources of protein. Enter the humble food made from soybeans. Um, 
Okay, so everybody everybody was dunking on this for like two days, right? Um, first of all, Tammy, uh, do you like do you like tofu? Yes, and I'm a vegetarian, so it's very important to me. But also, I'm Korean. Yeah, you're a vegetarian. Also, it's not yeah, chewy. I don't even like that. Made no sense to me. I know that, that was maybe bizarre. like a fried 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 baked but kind of tofu. That. But that's freaking weird, chewy. man. It is it, white. It is white. <laughs> And it is very okay. bland. Good. But yeah, we can debate that. Like, I would say bit. good tubu. It's pronounced tubu in Korean. I would say good tubu is not bland. It's actually quite nutty. Yeah. I agree. Good good tofu t- has its own flavor. But yeah, for sure, like the most most tofu dishes though are meant for meant to hide the or not hide compensate for the lack of flavor in tofu by dousing <laughs> it in sauces. Um, Although, I mean, it's, it's interesting because most of the sauces are based in soybeans anyway. Yeah. They're soybean sauces, so I don't know. Uh, Andy, do you like tofu? Yeah, I'm like Tammy. I'm a vegetarian, so I love tofu. and it. You're both vegetarian. It's like an intersection of our yeah. Asian and vegetarian identities. Staple food. <laughs> what about you, Jay? Yeah. You eat meat. Yeah, I don't like tofu. You really don't like it at all? <laughs> no. It's but like, have you been to like an, incre- like an Asian restaurant where they make it fresh? And you yes, still don't yes, like it? Have, like where they make it there. Cho-da- where they oh, make, where they it, make there. it fresh. Oh my yeah, God. that's even that's worse. Cho- yeah, I don't, I like that even Chodangol worse. in K-Town. <laughs> yeah, I, I just don't, uh, yeah, I, I just have never gotten into it. Sundubu is okay, you know, but I'd rather eat something <laughs> else. It's like one of those things where I'm like, if it's in front of me, I'll eat it, but I don't, I don't need to eat it. Um, okay, well, look, I didn't ask, I didn't bring this up just to say. Uh, to take a survey of the three of us to figure out if we like tofu. I was, just, I was just curious because I personally don't like it. And maybe I was wondering if that was coloring my inability to get offended about this. But larger question is, like, is there too much, is food too central in, uh, in, in Asian American politics? Do we talk about food too much? It seems like all we talk about is fucking I was, food. Yeah, I was thinking about this. I don't know if it's too central. I don't know if it's like people are taking it wrong. It's more like what food itself kind of lends itself to this so easily because it, above all that, there's a really low barrier of entry to food, right? It's like the one thing you could participate yeah. in your quote unquote parents' culture. That's really easy. All you have to do is eat the thing that's put in front of you. You don't have to <laughs> learn a language or visit where they came from. And then food is also interesting as, you know, we have this explosion of global cuisine the last couple you know, decades of globalization. Food is this, like, the one commodity that it's, like, it's found everywhere everywhere around the world and now being exported around the world. So it has, like, these cultural particularities, um, but it's also, like, enjoyed by everyone precisely because the barrier to entry is so low. And, like, I can't think of any other commodity that kind of both shares this, like, this is a Chinese thing, this is a Japanese thing, this is an Indian thing. But also everyone is eating it at the same time and making judgments about it. Like, it's not clothing. We all dress the same now. It's not books. It's not any... I can't really think of anything else. So that I think that's... The, the, the closest thing would be, like, pop music. But it's not there yet. And nowhere near as ubiquitous And as pop food. music is I all agree. basically based on, like, American pop music anyway, right? No? Not is anymore. That right? Yeah, but... Uh, yeah, but, I mean, you could also say all food is noodles <laughs> and rice there's no, no doubt there's, there's, shit, there's you know? bread there's tortillas <laughs> and bread and a white bread, chewy thing called tofu <laughs> acid salt, salt heat. acid yeah. salt or whatever it's well, called. Um, i don't know i think in response to your question jay that 
it is too central. Because if we look at the two access points for like Asian American celebrity culture and visibility, it's been food and it used to be like fashion designers. For some reason, there's like so many Asian American fashion designers and so many Asian American chefs. Yeah, um, and yeah, I think like in the years of foodie cultural emergence, Asian Americans have been huge in that. And it's fine. I think it doesn't mean that much to me. And I wish that we talked about other sectors of Asian American life. What do you guys think about this controversy? There's like Bon Appetit is the most recent one, but this general idea that like white, white, especially white, right? White celebrity chefs should not take credit for dishes that I guess come from places other than Europe and and, and the United States. I'm kind of meh on that. The Bon Appetit thing for me was more of a labor problem where you had underpaid minority employees who were funneled through the wrong channel and then made like a third of what their white colleagues made. But isn't the cultural appropriation problem potentially a labor problem also? Maybe. Yeah. But I don't think that was the crux of, of this debate. And I don't, I personally don't get super annoyed about white chefs cooking Asian food. I get more annoyed about Asian male chefs getting all the attention for labor that occurs in kitchens when it's 100% women doing the work. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, uh, yeah, I don't, the food appropriation stuff I find to be, I don't know. I mean, I, without even just saying like, oh, there's history where every food is crossed over, you know? Like, I just don't get, if you're going to get that mad about something, why you would get mad about like a white guy who in some good or white woman, but usually white guy who in some sort of good faith is trying to cook some other type of food, you know, like I just, like if you are arguing that there's uh you know, like that person is famous and, and rich because, and it's because he's stealing from the other places. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe, but like, is that really something that you should get that mad about? Like, it, it's just so central to everything. And it seems like for me, at least, it seems like it's be- actually what Andy is saying is correct in this way and that the fact that it is the only universal, you know, the fact that it is the only commodity that everybody who is Asian American and completely divorced in a lot of ways from their quote unquote cult- culture, but also want to mm-hmm. access their culture is the one way they can do it. And then the, but the framework through which they view it is just so you know, it's just so like rudimentary and like uh, crude, you know, it's like, is this authentic or is this not authentic? You know, do I know 10% more than you, than this person does about this type of food? You know, like, it's like, you know, like Tammy, it's like when Koreans, like Korean Americans, like debate whether or not like uh, different types of like kalbi or like makali or whatever, like some sort of like Korean thing that, that, uh, and then you just like sit there and you're like, what are we doing here? You know, like, what's this conversation? You know, like, why are we pulling rank on each other about this fucking thing that nobody in Korea gives a shit yeah. about? You know, like, it's weird. Yeah, no, there is a way that, like, diaspora tend to be more, even more nationalistic than people from the home country, which is an interesting phenomenon. But I do think people feel strongly about this precisely because, as you said, it is so crude, right? It feels like this thing that my mom made or my grandma made is now being stolen by this professional white chef that just discovered it last week. And I think on some gut level that feels wrong, but then you could 
you you know, perhaps you could dwell on it more and think about like, what is property really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the same debates go on but, in music and literature and all am that. I the, am I the landlord <laughs> right, Korean <exactly>. dude? <laughs> but I, 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 get the, I get the gut reaction. I get the sense of like, this is my food and blah, For blah, sure, blah, blah. yeah. It's just, the, it's just like how much it's discussed. You know, it seems like, I, I, okay, if I say 90% of online Asian American <laughs> outrage, like, you know, like little bursts are about things that happened around food. Do you think that I'm over exaggerating? Yeah, because you haven't. Like, it seems about 90%. 90%. No, are, Jay, it's like 30% around? YA novels. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. 30% YA novels and 70% food stuff. Oh, I don't know. Every time, like, a restaurant opens, yeah. you know, um, every time, like, uh, somebody puts, like, an offensive name on, like, a Chinese dish yeah. or they put, like, kimchi in something and then, like, some current, some Korean person gets really mad about them putting kimchi you in guys. it. I'm like, you know who put, you know, like, who puts Korean, you know who puts kimchi in a bunch of Western food right now is fucking Koreans in Korea. <laughs> like, that's all they do. They take, like, a fucking... Shit is good. <laughs> they take, like, a churro and they stuff it with kimchi and they say, kimchurro. <laughs> you know, like, that's, that's what food in Korea is like right now. I swear to God. I don't you know, know where it's you're okay. eating, it's but... Okay, but... <laughs> <laughs> you... That is... That is what it's like. Do you no. guys... Um, you can, we, we might have to edit this out, but do you guys actually care who are the chefs and who owns the Asian restaurants you go to? Like, in the U.S.? Do you, actually, do you actually look at like is this is this like a white chef is it an Asian chef? Uh, I would say that the Asian restaurants that I go to, Andy, there's no question yeah. at all, unless a white person is making like a minstrel. Minstrel. Of, well, that's a, so, Asian so that means that means that you have kind of stated a preference for definitely like Fabi Asian food. Uh, no, because I was just going to say, it's constrained by my budget, <laughs> yeah. so I'm good with that. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I'm not paying like more than $12 for an But I think that itself, I mean, we might be going on too long. That itself is like a statement about what is authentic, right? Like even, we could definitely afford $20 pho, but we're No, Andy, no, we're Andy, cheap. Andy, remember, and the one thing that's been established <laughs> over and over again between you hiring students that pack up your boxes for you, and you say we can all afford twenty dollar pho. It's like maybe maybe twenty dollar pho would not destroy my budget, but I would never ever pay right. twenty dollars for pho. I agree. But like, uh, sh- but not because of authenticity, but because I, you know, because I'm cheap. If there's a white person who makes good pho out there for twelve bucks, I'm there. Yeah, there, there's okay. one in Philly for sure, and really? I have it. It's good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I'm sort of like... We should establish like a percentage line <laughs> of cheaper. Tammy, you and me, because Andy doesn't care because apparently he's no. like super rich. But like Andy, Tammy, you Fast, and I can figure it out. Where wrong, it's like, wrong. <laughs> we can, where, uh, how much cheaper does it have to be where we'll stop With the races. caring that oh, the Oh, yeah, okay. There's got to be an yeah, yeah. equation so, like, for this. If, if there's a $12, let's say there's like a $12 peeping buff, right? And, and it's... Uh, and, and a white person makes a ten dollar oh, even pop, and okay. they're exactly the same. But the twelve dollar one was made by like a very sympathetic, like cool Korean person, mm-hmm. and the other one was made by oh, a white damn. person. Like, would you, would you still get the ten dollar people? This is why I'm trying to choose one? between like Amazon.com and like <laughs> and another electronics <laughs> vendor. And I'm like, what's uh, now? It's like, what's the racial premium? Um, no, no, no. Just answer I the question. I think twelve to ten is okay. Twelve to ten. Uh, did did you guys see this video that of uh, this woman in um, 
and towards California and sort of stalking Asian people and screaming at them. And like, you know, she, and somehow she got put on video twice <laughs> in one week. The like same woman? I did not see this. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, 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 yeah. Twice in one week. Yeah. So she's wearing a hat and she seems to have white hair. She is uh, not a physical threat to anybody, but you know, she is sort of, in the first one, she's accosting this, this young Asian woman and she's saying like, you know, like, you need to go back to your country. And then the second one, she's doing something similar, right, Andy? I, I don't quite remember this. The, the caption is just that she said something racist, but you don't actually see it on camera. And then she just is confrontational oh. for two minutes. So she's just wandering around Torrance trying okay. to pick fights with Asians? What's going on here? <laughs> I mean, Torrance is a good place to do I that. I know, but Jesus, it's also a bad place <laughs> yes. to do that. I know. Well, you have a lot, it's, you know, it's like when you get into a big school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, know, like, <laughs> you, have, you have everything you want to do, but you're going to be a little bit busy for a while. Um, this also, you know, this week also, there was a very, very viral video that uh, went out from an account called Jamie Tunes or Jaime Tunes. And it's of a guy in Pacific Heights, which is the most expensive part of San Francisco. Although I do think that this this particular block is not one of the places where, like, Danielle Steele lives, like that's where Danielle Steele lives, is in, is in Pacific Heights, she has oh like a God. whole block to herself. Um, he's putting a stencil up, Black Lives Matter, and a white couple comes up and tells him that, you know, he shouldn't do that because it's vandalism, and he says that they said they're going to call the cops, but you watch the video and like, you know, he's sort of telling them to call <laughs> the cops, you know, um, are you going to call the cops on me? I have a very, you know, this is a hot takey question, but that's what we do on the show. Do you think Asian people should be uh, building music <laughs> videos? Yeah, why not? <laughs> in in this moment, <laughs> is that only only black people get to do it? <laughs> well, look, I mean, uh, but I, my question is, is very specific. But <laughs> yeah, you know what yeah. I mean here, I think you know, like I watch this stuff, and then like we also yeah. just saw a fucking right. guy die right. from the police, you know, and we just saw another one die from the police yesterday yeah. in Atlanta, and like. Like you goading a white couple on so that because you know you're mm-hmm. gonna go viral, you know, like that's what that's a, uh, like the, the the ones in Torrance are different than this Jaime Tunes guy, which like this one is like much more annoying to me. Where it's like, you live in San Francisco, you know, like you sort of initiated all this. Like this couple, yeah, they said, yeah, you don't live here, and you're like, <laughs> yeah, I actually live here. But what's the context of that? It's the same bullshit as the Asian dudes who say. Uh, this person thought that I was right. a yeah, I was gonna boy. Say. No? Like, I live like here. Saying, right. I do live yeah. in fucking Pack Heights, bitch. And right. they're just like, all right. Yeah, congratulations. It's like being like, I am fucking Upper East Side till I die or something <laughs> like that. You know? So this guy, so this um, neighborhood is definitely super rich if he, if yeah. he lives there. It's okay. the richest. Right. The, a house costs 12 Yeah, so he's, he's Filipino. He identifies as Filipino. So I think... If anything, it's, I guess there's a class rage, right? Like, you know, they, they think he would, he's too poor to live there. Um, I mean, if he looked, if he was, oh, I don't know if you want to go this direction, but if he looked like super hoity-toity East Asian, uh, maybe they would have believed him automatically. But I think him calling himself people of color, he was kind of identifying with uh, the broader category of people who would be seen as too poor to live there, right? Yeah. It's, right. It's, yeah. So he's like getting indignant. Mm-hmm. And he was also like equating, in that way, he was equating his uh, his struggle with the greater struggle, right? 
like a saying people of color at that point is linking it to yeah. the black struggle that's going on. Am I wrong? I, I did I see someone mean? post that video and talk about how a black man was filming it because I think they assumed the word POC in the in oh, the caption meant that the person filming it was black, and I myself was confused. Like, is, like is this person black or not? I I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like the same stuff is happening to this woman who you know. I, let's be, she seems very unpleasant, <laughs> but uh, they they doxed her, and you know, like whatever will happen to her will happen to her. And I'm sure that it'll be very difficult for her for a couple of months and then hopefully it calms down. And maybe once every two months, somebody screams yeah. at her on the street, you know, because she is very distinctive. Looking. I don't know. Do you guys, um, I mean, I feel like none of the three of us are people who really post videos of ourselves on social media anyway. So like I find this whole like behavioral thing, unless it unmasks like an incredible injustice, like generally stupid. So I like think most of these things are stupid, but I yeah. do, I quit Facebook several years ago, but like a year or two before that, there was a, I had a hilarious encounter with a guy who called me chink in Manhattan, which happens like every year or so in New York. And I did post that to Facebook because it was funny. Cause you know, what was the response? Well, it was, was it like, I posted a photo of him because I was, I sort of was able to like corner him and then like, he was afraid of me. So I was very excited by that. <laughs> and I took a photo of him, but you know, I'm not really into the sort of video stuff. So is it, are we also just recoiling against like the use of videos for like stupid shit? Cause this isn't the most offensive thing to happen to somebody. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of all like at the beginning of coronavirus when all those like, uh, yes, media exactly. Asians were coming out and saying that like, right. A lady talked you to me right. in the uh, grocery store and nobody's ever done that to me before. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. nobody's ever done that to you before. Like, am I a particularly cheeky type of Asian? You know, that this happens to me a lot, you know? I never complain about it. Right, doesn't like, it happen well, to everyone? Happen to yeah. me, I guess, you know? Like, I get mad for, like, 20 minutes. Sometimes I say something back, sometimes I don't. But I do agree that if it never happened to me and then it started happening, I then I would yeah, by it. But I just can't, like, think of a world where it's just, like, that never happened. But like, where the fuck did you guys go to school? Are we, um, are we the poster child then for, like, internalized racism, like, we don't, we don't want to rock the boat. We just kind of take it in stride. No, because we don't take it. We swear at people and throw things at them, but we just don't post yeah. it on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, the, if Andy brings up a very good point. Okay, maybe we... Internalizing <laughs> racism there. <laughs> We've erected a hierarchy of racism and put ourselves at the bottom of it. <laughs> like... Because uh, I was watching the Torrance, uh, I was watching that Torrance video with that old lady, you know, and I was just like, it's kind of <laughs> funny, you know, like, because she's so, she's so racist, and she's clearly like something's wrong. And so then you feel some yeah. sympathy for her, because, you know, like real racist people don't walk up to random Asian people in fucking Torrance, which is like, I don't know, I was just gonna Torrance say, 100% just, yeah. Asian, and, and, you know, like, <laughs> and like, and walk up to them and be like, you dumb chink, go back to China or whatever. Like, the woman is clearly, there's something yeah, wrong with her. The first know? video and, where they identify the person holding the camera as like an Asian, she calls her a teenager, I guess a young woman. She's laughing the whole time. And it's like, this person isn't taking it seriously. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we could, I could imagine how someone who doesn't, who you know has a thick skin doesn't take it seriously. We could also imagine someone who takes her very seriously. And you know would record it and put it on on mm. online and mm-hmm. talk about. So I don't know. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to tell people 
don't take racism so seriously, right? Or, 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 or. <laughs> no, I'm telling them that. I'm saying that. I'm saying that there's types of racism that we shouldn't take seriously. I don't know. Let's. I, I'm just trying to say we're yeah. in like this moment that feels revolutionary yeah. in terms of race, and like there's a way for us to do it. But trying to go viral by recording and instigating racist incidents, you know, when you're Asian, I don't know. Why are I'm Asians calling it. themselves POC so much? Do we want to talk about that? I but. That's always been. Oh, yeah. I've, I've thought that was always the case. I though. mean, define always. I would say like not when we were much younger, but maybe in the last POC, like ten years, fifteen years. I, I don't remember hearing POC as a kid, but I was in you know the suburbs. I not. I wasn't living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, so. <laughs> I don't think what? that's the only place. Oh yeah, Jay I was. was. <laughs> <laughs> Did people talk about POCs in kindergarten over there? <laughs> <laughs> The two, the two university towns I grew up in, I yeah. never heard it either. I think it's so relatively it like, new in, um, like, mainstream usage, know. but Asians are all about I mean, it right now. We had this conversation, Tammy, you brought up, do do we count as, quote-unquote, black and brown folk? Does, <laughs> right. You know, does this category... I've heard, you know, I've heard people, I, I, Asians, identify in and out of that category. Mm-hmm. What, I mean, what do you think is the stakes of that, though? Well, I think it appears even in this video that we were just discussing where this Filipino guy says, me as a person of color, this is what I encountered. And as you guys noted, in that, you know, linguistic gesture and then having the hashtag Black Lives Matter, he's drawing a line. Yeah. I think it's more like Filipinos are definitely more people of color, right? Well, maybe some (laughs) of them. I mean, I think it's a state of mind, right? It's a choice. And they are black and brown. POCs, though, right? Like, I think that... um, Tammy, this is something that I mentioned this morning on Twitter, but I uh, deleted, where I think that, like, it is very funny for me to watch, and funny is the right word, is to watch, like, these sort of professional class Asian Americans, um, professional Asian Americans, not meaning Asian American <laughs> professionals, but people who are <laughs> Asian American as a profession, do this whole, like, thing being, like, we're so privileged. Like, we have to examine anti-blackness in our communities, you know, and examine our own privilege. Like, you know, like doing that whole thing. And then the second it becomes about trying to get a better job or more pay <laughs> at an elite media institution, they go, I'm a POC, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. it's like convenient. that. It's like they go from one, like being like, I'm so privileged. And then the second the fucking handout is coming out, they, they go right in line and say, we're POCs. Yeah. You know, we're all POCs. Why'd you delete right? that? Like, give me a fuck. That, that, um... Because I I meant it to be funny, and I thought it would be read as angry. But it sounds like you you are angry. (laughs) No, I'm not angry. I I just think think it's it's funny. No, that's a good point, right? Like, and, yeah, like, even in... (laughs) I I have to confess, in my own head, I kind of keep these two thoughts separate. And they both make sense on their own, but when you put them next to each other, they do seem pretty absurd, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it's like, not like, necessarily like, either or. It, there could be a spectrum. <laughs> Shades of gray. <laughs> no, there's no spectrum. <laughs> it's either or. It's, it's either you, you feel yourself as being privileged and separate and that your community has contributed to, uh, you know, like the material conditions that produce, you know, black poverty, black death, right? Like, which is all the language that people use, right? You either believe that. And you believe that you don't, that when it's time to have diversity initiatives and to rethink 
the white supremacy within these institutions, that we're not all the same then. You know, like that doesn't mean we all become the same at that moment and that you are the exact same as everybody else, right? Like right. That, that, that's, yeah. those two have I mean, there would be like. Um, okay. You're canceled, Andy. Yeah, Andy, you're canceled. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you've, you've been kicked out of the POC Slack at your at the university you teach at. That's <laughs> just two of us. You're out of the black and brown Slack. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so the last thing we want to talk about is a little bit more serious and a little bit more weighty and important, and that is an article that came out by uh, Kianga Yamada-Taylor. Uh, Tammy, you actually hosted a talk with her like a week ago, right? I did, yeah, with her and Mark Lamont Hill. And it was... Um, and how, how'd that it go? It was good. It was on our present uprising and how they see it. Um, if folks don't know, Kianga and Mark are two black intellectuals. Um, Mark is involved in broadcast journalism mostly, and Kianga has gotten, I would say, pretty big recently. Like, she's a columnist at the New Yorker and the New York Times, so a lot more people are reading her. She was also a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Um for her book on uh, housing discrimination. But um, I think Andy and Jay were very moved by a piece she recently wrote in the New York Times on the black political class, which is a concept she's been obsessed with for a very long time, which is basically this idea that there's always been like a black machine politics in the US that is in some ways parallel to white machine politics, and it has to go. It doesn't represent the concerns of most black people. And in this moment of rebellion, it's really doing a disservice to the community. She's not talking about black politicians as a monolithic group. She is no. talking mostly about the Congressional Black Caucus, right, and the and, and the machine politics mm-hmm. that exist. Uh, I, I don't know. Remember, like some of that was under criticism after South Carolina, if you remember, mm-hmm. from people on the Bernie left um, who were saying that you know Clyburn had you know, had had sort of tanked, used his influence to tank Bernie. And that that was a part of establishment politics. And some of the response that, if you remember what back then was that, um, and part of the debate was that, look, uh, black people and black politicians can't, by definition, be part of the establishment, right? Do you remember this argument that was yeah. happening? I think that it was done a lot by one of the big proponents of it was a young reporter at the New York Times. Um, and I found it to be an uncomfortable argument to wade into because I, you know, like I also grew up in the South, and you know, I'm aware of Black Southern politicians mm-hmm. who, um, some of whom are great, and some of whom are part of like a larger machine that want, that never is questioned in terms of whether or not it upholds the best values of Black people mm-hmm. or quote unquote people of color. <laughs> um, but the, I don't know. Like, I, did you feel any resolution of that question, Andy? Because I know that you and I had talked about that before. Um, what do you mean from the article or? To, yeah, yeah, from the article. To the burden. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I was curious what you meant, Tammy, when you said they have to go. My, I, I read the article pretty quickly, but I think for, I was kind of reading it as saying there's a generational shift underway. Uh, so I guess they have to go in the sense that they're going to age out, and she's hopeful <laughs> that they will be replaced by a more ambitious and more, um, you know, less co-optable, I guess, or less less uh, opportunistic, but nevertheless, nevertheless, like, committed to black um, communities, black politicians, right? And she, mm-hmm. I guess not even politicians, because she's, she's mostly talking about movement leaders. And this is something we, I guess, you know, Jay, Jay kind of picked up on. Kind of, she was kind of like naming individuals who could be uh, seen as the leaders of the Black Lives, Lead, 
Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I, I was. Okay, let, let, let's let's not go there yet, Andy. Yeah. I, I I want your thoughts on this though. Like, what's the what do you think? Like, do you think that there is a sort of sclerotic layer of oh, of yeah. uh, of of politician, and that we have tied too much of the questions about race into them and given them a little bit too much deference yeah. in the ways that they think? I think for sure, and it wasn't just with this campaign. In twenty sixteen, I remember like John Lewis famously comes out against all of Bernie's proposals. Then people said, like, you cannot talk, you can't criticize John Lewis at all because uh, of his role in the civil rights movement. <laughs> right. I'm very much an outsider to that whole history and politics. Um, so I, don't, I can't even claim I grew up in the South like you, Jay. Uh, <laughs> so I do, I do hesitate to wade in on it, but it does seem clear to me that one has to make these distinctions. Um, but it isn't so much that race or, you know, black identity has to be discarded, more that it has to stop being seen as something in and of itself, that is a political cause, right? Like it has to be tied to like black um, working class politics or black middle class, whatever, right? But not, you have to make draws these distinctions between um, using black as a sort of umbrella term that covers up political divisions between the leadership class that could, you know, be in the pocket of Mike Bloomberg, for instance, mm-hmm. versus those who, you know, very clearly don't, don't want to work for Mike, Blo- Mike Bloomberg and have a critique of, Institutions and so I think it's kind of a wreck. I, I think it's pretty yeah, clear. Like London Breed here oh in San God. Francisco endorsed. Right. Yeah, she's a black woman. She endorsed. Uh, she endorsed Mike Bloomberg for president, yeah. right? Um, she did. Whoa. Yeah. At which point you're just like, just Biden's better. <laughs> no, like, <laughs> <laughs> like I get that you don't want to go with Bernie or Warren, but like just pick Biden. You know, well, how'd you pick the worst one? Um, Tammy, what do you think? I mean, look, this is a very uncomfortable question, right? And it's one that I totally sympathize with, with the people who are, who, uh, criticize this type of criticism because they're saying like a bunch of white people or a bunch of three Asian people in this, (laughs) in this, uh, instance are telling us what our politics are, you know? And I, 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 I think that that's a really, I think that's a really strong critique that needs to be handled. But, you know, I think this is why Kianga's work is so yeah. vital because I think that like we're we're you know it's not that we're not we're hiding behind her work I think it is literally just want to discuss her work you know because I think that a lot of people feel this way and they haven't been given voice in the past mm-hmm. right I mean people have been criticizing the CBC since when you know like the coup you know like that Oakland rap group like wrote songs about <laughs> it you know like in the in like the early aughts like it's not like it's a new thing like it's 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 always been there and now it's finally being at this level, like, uh, yeah. Tammy, what do you think about, like... I mean, yeah, I don't, nobody cares what Jay, Andy, and Tammy think on this question, but I think if we rehearse her criticisms, and other people have said it too, like Tanasi Coates and other people have weighed in on, for instance, the disappointments of Obama, and what did Obama mean, and, what, you know, did he actually serve the black people in the way that he said that he was going to? And she's always been a very forceful critic of Obama, you know, and I think that's what, what she's trying to accomplish in this article is to say... We have other options. We, first of all, in electoral politics, we should put forth people who we know are going to continuously represent our interests and not be co-opted in this way. And second of all, it's not just about electoral politics, and the uprising is showing that. You know, and I think that's a totally fair argument. And I'm I'm so glad that there are incredible Black intellectuals critiquing these corrupt Black politicians because they are, and I think it's okay to talk about that. Yo 
We're really happy today to have Tejik Kim Jr. here from Seattle, who's been involved in the anti-police organizing there and also organizing on behalf of homeless and unhoused people. Um, he's a freelance writer. He works with the video company The Cut, and he was also an organizer with the Bernie campaign in Washington State. Welcome, Tejik. Thank you for having me. So do you want to start uh, by describing a little bit about what you're seeing in Seattle, especially in Capitol Hill with the Autonomous Zone? Yeah, so the name switched, I think, yesterday officially from Chaz to Chop. I think it's called uh, Capitol Hill um, Occupy... Protest. Protest, yes. <laughs> what was wrong it. with Chaz, though? Uh, <laughs> so... I don't think anyone officially knows who named the area Chaz. Um, and I've heard a lot of complaints about it. And I think I think it was kind of taking away from the movement, you know. And I think people were scared that white people were just turning it into like Burning Man. Especially <laughs> with a lot of the music festivals this year being canceled. And I think people have that itch. Oh, wow. And so I think when you include like protests and occupy in the name it kind of re-emphasizes re-emphasizes why we're there mm. oh yeah because the autonomous zone they thought felt too much like it was like hey let's have a this is like a new world we're trying to build but it doesn't have to necessarily be tied to politics it was like being... or, or like or the demands mm -hmm. that it's that it is just like a free free thing now like Bernie man i guess they're like recreating the gorge out there exactly and I think um, our mayor visited Chaz, now CHOP, a couple days ago and yesterday. And mm. she was pretty explicit in trying to co-op Chaz. And oh, wow. so she would say stuff like, Capitol Hill was always autonomous. I support this. Even though I know she's dying inside. So <laughs> we kind of <laughs> juked her out and renamed it again. All right, do you go down there every day? Are you, are you, like, what's your role there? Um, I go down there almost every day. Definitely, I'm not staying there overnight. Some a lot of people are. Um, mm -hmm. I don't live too far, but I'm part of the collective who's who's pushing more of like the demands, and um, we are also being pretty intentional in supporting the protesters there and knowing that we need them to continue that type of important work for us to continue to have leverage against elected officials. Mm. What is the uh, collective? Can you say a little bit about how the collective is organized and what your demands are so far? Yeah, the collective is, um, let's see, what's the best way to put it? We just officially released a joint coalition name and we're calling it Decriminalize Seattle. And mm. that collective is made up of, it's a multiracial collective, but uh, mostly black, queer, femme-led. And um, yeah, it, it's people who've come together around different coalitions in the past, like we're um, trying to stop uh, youth incarceration. Um, and I'm sure you know, back in February, King County built a brand new $233 million youth jail. Mm -hmm. um, it's groups that have come together around trying to stop and prevent homeless encampment sweeps. Um, that battle has been going on for, for years now. Um, it's come together to try and stop uh, the, build, the building of a new half a billion dollar state-of-the-art 
heavily militarized police bunker in the north end of Seattle. And so each of those groups um, serves a different purpose. Like we have um, Anak Bayan, which is a progressive uh, Filipino freedom fighting group. Um, we have Seattle People's Party, who ran Nikita Oliver for mayor in 2017. Mm -hmm. um, we have like the CID coalition that deals with gentrification um, and combating anti-blackness in the international district in Seattle. Um, like I said, no new youth jail, et cetera. And so there's a lot of different groups that have come together and know that this is a moment that we can push for a progressive radical left agenda. Um, mm -hmm. And also to remind the people of Seattle that uh, police brutality is not only happening in Minneapolis or Minnesota, it's, it's happened here over and over again. Um, you know, with Charlene Alonso and John Williams. Um, and so mm -hmm. we're just trying to remind our elected officials that uh, you can't just uh, say good things about Black Lives Matter because you're a so-called liberal leader um, when you're not dealing with it in your own city. Mm. Is everyone going down and meeting down at, at CHOP then, like all the, all the groups that you talked about? Like, has it become a centralized meeting zone for radical leftist groups that already existed in Seattle. Like how, 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 is, how is the space being used to organize those groups? Yeah, I would say the space is pretty organized in terms of like mutual aid. I think there's um, a very, uh, there is a intentional effort around everyone getting fed, there's supplies there, there's a medic tent there that's um, always giving out supplies. Uh, people are always getting water. Um, if you're there, um, housing situation. Um, but I would say like with marches and stuff, it's, it's become a pretty peaceful area when it comes to that. I think a lot of the marches that have sparked over the past couple of days have started, um, in spaces like in the South end to like a precinct or, um, from a different elementary school. But I, I wouldn't say that any of the, the, the movement work that, is sparking and continuing conversations around police brutality is necessarily starting at CHOP. But we did have a ceremony a couple nights ago where we did a teach-in at CHOP where mm -hmm. um, it was Black queer-led. And yeah, I mean, it, it was a space where like we saw thousands of people come together at CHOP and um, we just talked about the movement and why the demands were important and we broke down why we're going for the things we're going for. Um, in as inaccessible way as possible. What? Mm -hmm. So, basically, you mentioned creating leverage and pushing the city uh, in the direction of your demands. What exactly is the strategy for why um, occupying Capitol Hill would uh, push the city? Like, what what leverage are you creating? I guess that might just be like a basic question, but in practical, in a practical sense, why would they be pushed by you guys? I think the leverage that chop had up until this point is that quite frankly the police department did not want to give up that space mm. and i think there is a i can put on my tinfoil hat or i can do my research historically on why police departments give up precincts and how it's strategic for them and how it pacifies the movement etc cetera, etc cetera. but i think the bottom line is the cops did not want to leave <laughs> the precinct and they're pissed off yeah and I think um, they are continuously pressuring their chief, who's continuously pressuring the mayor 
on saying we want this space back and we're not losing to these ugly anarchists as trump would call us um, <laughs> has, anyone got, has anyone got inside i know like is did they actually leave the door open because i saw that that yeah, was part there's of... there's claims that we broke inside but no one's gone inside and that's the thing it's like there's a lot of lies that are coming out from the police department mm. to justify the um the taking back of their precinct and over and over again we've been able to prove those lies as lies and so I mean, I'm sure you've seen Trump's tweet about Chaz and Seattle yeah. and yeah. the anarchists. There's also I, I the, uh, the Fox News infographic right. where they airshot like a... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, amazing. It's <laughs> re- amazing recruiting, though. You know, for... It's like, it's just propaganda for for Chop or Chaz or whatever, you know? Yeah. Is that Donald Trump is, like, t- tweeting about it. <laughs> right. And Fox News is making these hilarious photoshops of it. Like, it just gives it so much more attention, I think. Like, uh... It does. It was, and, and, uh, and I do think the night that Trump tweeted about it really changed the game. And I think up until that mm-hmm. point... Durkin was trying to find this balance with appeasing the protesters a little bit, painting a good protester, bad protester narrative, but really trying to help the police take back the precinct. Um, I think she had no choice but to give up the precinct, quote unquote. I mean, we haven't like gone in the precinct, but that area, because there is so much negative coverage of what Seattle Police Department was doing to protesters. I mean... The amount yeah. of chemical warfare that our police department was doing was way greater than any other police department in the country. And it was just like, wow, is this like liberal city mm. uh, exactly. in, in the most progressive neighborhood in that city, at least politics wise, being like the, the focal point of a war zone. You know, it looks like mm-hmm. a war zone there. Yeah, what, what's the answer to that? Because I was surprised by that, too. I don't know that much about SPD, but like the Seattle Police Department, but, you know, everyone just brings up WTO, WTO, and I, you know, and, but, like, that was 20 fucking two years ago, you know, like, all the cops who were there have all retired, I'm sure, except for, like, five of them who are too old now to be cracking people's heads anyway. Right. Like, why was there so much, like, violence, and, like, why are these cops wilding out? Like, you know, like, that video that they take from the aerial that everyone's seen where a woman has a pink umbrella and is sort of not even jabbing it at a police officer, just like is has it there. And then they start firing off pepper spray and, you know, and tear gas and beating protesters back. Like, what, why is this happening? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think what the history that you name over a couple of decades ago sustained itself, at least the type of racism that we see with the uh, SPD. Um, I think it was 2010 when the consent decree was first brought upon uh seattle police department ironically through then um prosecutor uh jenny durkin who is now our mayor trying to relieve it but in 2010 john t williams was murdered by the police and the indigenous community was so well organized that it uh, prompted a federal investigation on our police department and the ruling was a consent decree where there's going to be an oversight um, a federal oversight, basically a probation of some sort, um, but also like uh, community commissions, etc. And so five years later, they reviewed that because it was only supposed to be for five years. And then they were still out of compliance with the consent mm. decree uh, through racism and um, excessive use of force. And mm. so that type of probation is still 
hanging over the head of our police department. And I'm not surprised that it hasn't been lifted yet. I mean, we mm -hmm. saw what's been going on um, on Capitol Hill over the past couple of weeks before the occupying started happening. Um, and so a part of me was was shocked that the department could go to those levels. But the other part of me was like, yeah, this is exactly why our mm. uh, why SPD is always in trouble. Over hmm. and yeah. over again. Do you think that with do you think that now that the mayor and the city then they, they can't like violently take it back because of, like you said, the Trump tweets and all this kind of bad PR that they would take? Like now they're kind of um, kind of trapped to like they can't do like what Bloomberg did, which is like coming come through the night and kind of shut it, shut things down. And where and people see on camera how violent they are, they will have to somehow deescalate peacefully. Well, yeah, so that's kind of what I was getting at earlier is that um, next year is a re-election year for Jenny Durkin. She has already announced a re-election campaign. She knows she was losing public favor drastically through all the videos people were seeing with what SPD was doing with, with the gassing and the flashbangs and sending people to emergency rooms. And so, <laughs> but she still like needed to have her police departments back. So she was trying to play this weird neoliberal middle game. And then mm -hmm. Trump sent out his tweets and kind of put her in a position where she's like, oh, fuck, she's like, trapped. am I going <laughs> to side with this fascist president and push these people out? Or do I have to embrace Chaz and Chop and I'm, my brain's malfunctioning? And she's in this really weird spot now. Because yeah. I know she has to win this election next year. But... You can't does, align does yourself know, with Trump at that's, all that's, if you're going to win any election in Seattle. My, my thing for her is just like, if I was her, I'd just be like, fuck this shit. Yeah, I'm out of here. Sure. You know? like, I will resign. You know? that, like, I don't care. I don't need this shit. I don't want to make this choice. That, but I that guess I'm not, a, I'm not a politician, but you're right. <laughs> like, that's crazy, this position that Trump put her in. But so many He's, Democratic mayors and governors are in the same position because they they've yeah, been... Totally. Cow, you know, right? They've been... You know, subservient to their police forces, but also like they don't want to be seen as a Trump supporter. So, like, is everyone going to lose their election next year? Like, I, I've, well, I've been thinking that. Yeah, I mean, is, is, is Kashama going to be the mayor <laughs> of, of Seattle? I mean, we see I what's happening she... with Jacob Frey, right? Right. Yeah. In, yeah. in Minneapolis, yeah. and he, him being like dragged out of his house and then totally. forced to answer these yes or no demand questions, and then getting <laughs> booed off. And this guy was like a conventionally attractive younger mayor who's supposed to be the progressive answer. Totally. And, but he, and he's not winning his election next year. Jim no, he's definitely not. But I will say this, that like, I think that um, with him, it's like he was really progressive. You know, they, if they, ha they pass housing, zoning laws that are hugely, hugely important. You know, like Minneapolis, first major city in the country to pass uh, the elimination of single family zoning, right. which, you know, as you know, is it mass, can you imagine if they did that in Seattle? You know, like it would completely change, change the city. Yeah. Like the city would become much bigger, it'd become more diverse. Like the housing stuff that happens there would would be much, much, much more alleviated. And yet it doesn't matter, you know, he's still he's still on the chopping block. <laughs> Dirk, like, what, so what's Durkin doing? How's Durkin trying to, um, how's Durkin trying to co-op this thing? I, I'm fascinated by this because like, <laughs> I just watch it from afar and it's all like, it's not funny in the sense that like, of course it's a very serious sure. situation, but it's funny watching somebody flail around like this and trying to imagine what she's like talking to her advisors about being like, oh my God, what, what do I do now? <laughs> well, I will say that it's encouraging 
and uh, comforting to hear that somebody who's not in Seattle is watching this and also believes that Durkin's flailing around. Uh-huh. Because that's how we <laughs> yeah. feel on the local level. And we're just kind of looking at her being like, do you know what you're doing? <laughs> um, she's been having, she's been trying to have a lot of closed door meetings with, um, I don't know what the nicest way to put it is, but like random activists that no one has ever heard mm-hmm. of, um, black activists who have been questioned from day one of everything going on, being like, where'd you come from? Who are you accountable to? Why are you saying these things to the crowd? Why do you keep insisting we should work with the mayor? And again, like all things, when you add it up, you have the youth immediately because, you know, the youth don't hold back are being like, these are ops. These are are paid activists. Um, But I won't go into that because I I do think, you know, there's a a level of You didn't say it. I didn't say it. You did not say it. You said the youth have said it. The youth have said it. And, you know, the youth have reminded me where there's smoke, there's fire. (laughs) okay that's a little more direct (laughs) i also like this idea that you're not the youth i'm not the youth youth. right right. um but what was i saying um the yeah i I do think there's a level of danger in like calling somebody an op and you know that's that's a very strong accusation but i will say that the mayor is having these meetings with people who nobody has ever heard of and trying to put out like press releases by saying, "I'm see, I'm meeting with BLM activists. Right. Like we're we're making progress." And the other day, she just announced a hundred million dollars towards community solutions. Super vague. And hundred million dollars is not a small deal. And she promised it over ten years, which you know is a billion dollars. And so we're like, "Hey, a, where is that coming from? Is that coming from cops?" And she has said, "No, it's not coming from cops. I don't know yet." B, we're in a uh, we have to review the budget because COVID has put us in a three hundred million dollar deficit. And yeah. so she's having every department in Seattle make drastic budget cuts, except surprise, surprise, the Seattle Police Department. Right. And yep. so this was all before this was going on. So even through a three hundred million dollar budget shortfall, we're still while we're, you know, requiring departments to make really heavy budget cuts. She's promising the, this $100 million. Um, it's pretty much just a resolution, and we know resolutions don't really do much. And she's not saying where it's from, and she's confirmed it's not from the police department. Um, and while saying that she's meeting with these BLM activists. Wow. Uh, these are all things that if we're not like caught up to speed every day and knowing what her moves are, um, she could quickly spin the narrative into mm. tricking people that she's actually doing something. Yeah, yeah that stuff is thorny. You know, like, who gets to talk to the mayor? Like, who gets to do these negotiations? Who gets to list demands? And, yeah, I I always noticed in 2016 the most, not so much in 2014, because things were more chaotic, like in August, you know, like when Mike Brown was killed. But certainly by 2016, it really seemed like local governments had been, had figured out that there were people that they Mm. could reach out who would be more sympathetic to talking to them and totally. would want the photo op and the news that goes along with it, then that doesn't mean they're ops, you know? Sure. But it means that they're chosen for a reason, right? Yeah. And uh, that definitely is happening right now. Yeah. In New York, it's like crazy. New York has like turned into like an op call-out movement <laughs> now where they're oh, really? accusing everybody yeah. of being ops. Yeah. It's, 
it's enter- it's like it's like wild to watch and it's in some ways sad and yet some of them are definitely ops you know and, and, and then and then some of them aren't but it's yeah like that, that so Durkin is using that playbook she's like picking people kind of like you know like you can you can roll your eyes and be like well that person wants to wants to be talking to Durkin well, so Durkin has a history of hiring ops, and that, I think that's what kind of sparked the um, <laughs> the youth to be like, we need to investigate. When she was a prosecutor, how young is this youth, by the way? If you're not the youth, the youth, let's just say like they're like native TikTokers, you know, like I'm not, I'm not <laughs> in TikTok. <laughs> Uh, but I always joke, like, you know, someone's generation on like the platform they choose to do their live stream. Like I yeah. would never <laughs> live stream on Facebook, but yeah, yeah. like there's a lot of my organizing yeah. friends who are a little older than me who chooses to live stream on Facebook and it just yeah. blows my mind. I was playing basketball with a 12 year old the other day and he said he had like 2 million followers on TikTok. I was like, what? <laughs> What Whoa! Whoa, dude! You didn't even have... didn't get broken. You would have been on <laughs> yeah, this TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah. Dur- anyway, I won't go into Durkin hiring a former op that uh, used to, uh, was a sex offender, and when she was quoted on why she used that sex offender as an op, she said, "You can't use saints to catch the sinners." So. Okay. She's wow. had some crazy quotes the last few weeks. That's freaking yeah. crazy. But anyway, oh. anyway. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, going back to that question around like, uh, well, you mentioning it being thorny on who gets to actually have the meetings with the mayor. Um, we've been doing a lot of meeting interruptions, finding out um, when these meetings are happening. And we would go in, make sure that um, black residents in Seattle, in King County are included in those conversations, but also making sure that these meetings are live streamed. And this is, you know, because of technology, um, we really try to push the issue that this is going to be recorded mm. and put on live, and this is not going to happen behind closed doors. Um, and Even up until the, you know, I think t- to this point, the mayor has gotten pretty used to that demand, and we've been getting away with it. She had that crazy quote that she turned off police body cameras because she's critical of the surveillance state. Right. You remember that? Oh yeah, that's her. That's her. Oh my god. That, is she? she um, that's what happens when someone is taught all the buzzwords, you know, right. all the issues. Like, her briefings yeah. must be insane. I know. I have a question. Are you guys, I know you guys are probably super busy with everything in Seattle. Are you paying attention to, um, have people reached from the rest of the country reached out to you? And are you interested in the idea of other occupied protests or autonomous zones, but occupied protests um, emerging elsewhere? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I I think it's really important to connect with organizers in other areas. Um, We were really inspired by the um, Minneapolis uh, city city council push to dismantle police, basically. Um, But since then, talking with organizers and actually finding out that... um, that it looks really good on paper, but there is also a high likelihood that in a year it could just amount to nothing because it's kind of like a resolution. And yeah. so there was no commitment to defunding the police there. There was no commitment to funding alternative solutions, but they did commit in principle to starting over and dismantling the police department, which could end up as a very radical thing, but Again, like it's, 
we're, we're learning from other organizers on like lessons they've learned, et cetera. And we're also like talking to people about like, I think everyone has eyes on Chaz chop right now. And so kind of offering lessons to, um, I, I will say that I, as glad as I am with what's going on on Capitol Hill, um, if I were to go back, I would wish we would do it around an area that was more um, advantageous to the goals that we're trying to meet. You know, what does that mean? Yeah. Like, why is Capitol Hill not that? Because, like, you know, like that area is so bougie. You know, and it has a park. Like, isn't wasn't the idea to make those people uncomfortable? Uh, I mean, yes and no. I, I think it's bougie, but it's like, it's like younger Bernie bro. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of down bougie. You know what I mean? Like we're not in mm-hmm. like Bill Gates's neighborhood occupying Like space. in Medina. Yeah, right. Occupy Medina. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> occupied Mercer Island or something. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, in Seattle, it blows my mind. It's like, it's the capital of not knowing who's rich or not. You know what I mean? Like, I was standing in line um, at an ATM. It may or may not have been at a pot shop. But I was standing in line, and this, like, scraggy older white guy was in front of me. And he, like, looked. I Like, I, honestly, like, I'm, now I'm homeless shaming, so I'm definitely not a good housing advocate. But he, he looked like he's he's been, like, pretty roughed up. You know, and... He left his ATM and he had like food in his beard and he like walked back to the line and he left his like balance screen on. And I was like, oh, what a flex. And I like looked, of course. And he had like 800 something thousand dollars sitting in a checking account. Oh, shit. In a, in a fucking debit account. And I was just like, what? See, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Like, you don't, like in LA, you know who's rich. In New York, you know who's rich, more or less, you know. Yeah, um, but, but the people, but the people who live in those condos around around shop, they're all pretty wealthy. A lot of them work for Amazon or Starbucks or sure. stuff like that, I mean, right? It's, it's yeah. walking distance to Amazon. It's been gentrified pretty heavily. Um, but yeah, but there's no real space to like, unless you're kicking somebody out. Like those units are pretty occupied, you know. Versus like, and but it does do like a public disruption. And as things are starting to open up again and um, CHOP and the Occupy there are uh, inevitably going to pose a more of a um, distraction to everyday workflow, we'll see how the impacts continue to grow. But, I mean, I would love to see some kind of leverage like that happen in, like, um, city-owned buildings that aren't occupied right now that we can try to force a um, negotiation on a deed to build affordable housing um i think golf courses are great (laughs) places because no you know what i mean that's like you can don't mess up my golf course Forty thousand potential people being housed on golf courses a lot of them city owned I'm with right. you, but Jay is counter-revolutionary in this regard. <laughs> yeah, don't go down to Tacoma and mess up Chambers Bay. <laughs> Please stay take up, Chambers Bay. If you're going to do it, just stay up there. You know, stay up in that, I mean, golf courses are also hard to protect in that sense. You know, It's very big and yeah. open. But imagine if yeah. like a bunch of housing advocates and organizers and protesters all just rushed the golf course and just built like 
planted an encampment there. I love it. For sure. But Why would you, yeah, yeah. Now that makes it. But the the, the I mean, I, I I see what you're saying. Uh, I I gotta go soon, Tammy. But oh yeah, like you, Do you want, yeah. But, um, Tashik, just to change the subject a little bit, I was curious if you could say a little bit about how you've experienced this, and you know what your, you know, as a person who's Korean and Black and who's been involved in organizing not only in Washington but where you're from in Hawaii. Um, like, what does it feel like just for yourself personally to be going through this incredible moment? Um, yeah, I. I so yeah, like you said, I'm I'm from Hawaii, and I think the number one thing that um, I'm reminded of when I'm organizing in Seattle is how beautiful it is to fight for a place that you've called home. And Seattle has not been that place for me. And don't get me wrong, like it's still very important to, for myself and um, organizing with people who, you know, they have generations here, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that, that type of... Uh, sentiment i guess is not really built in me with a place like seattle but definitely in solidarity i'm trying to push that through a lot of people ask me why um, housing is the issue that i'm most passionate about specifically Mm -hmm. the homelessness crisis in seattle and i think for myself growing up um, in hawaii in section 8 housing and always a kind of like that one step removed from our family also facing that type of hardship um, yeah. But also hardship and, and, you know, in a lot of ways that we face as well um, has drawn me towards that type of uh, activism. I grew up in, or at least like a short period of time in the Korean immigrant church, mm-hmm. um, which I'm sure is not unique. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think the church has been always really good at like um, charitable type of uh, ministry, I guess. And yeah. I guess a question that I've always wrestled with as like a, a teenager within the church is like the difference between like charity and justice and always wondering why, like we were so quick to do like soup kitchens and things like that, but we never really dug into the issues on like, why is this person homeless mm. and unhoused versus okay. like, how do we like temporary fix the issue? And I think Building that analysis during that time as a church person and then becoming an organizer on the street, asking those similar questions to the city on like, why are we putting band-aids on the issue when we're not really digging into the heart of it um, Mm -hmm. has been a a pretty clear transition for myself. But yeah, being from Hawaii, um, multiracial family, but um, largely Asian American presenting myself, I know that my dad being a Korean immigrant, but black and Korean, his father was a, or is a um, war veteran. And so he was a war baby during the Mm -hmm. Korean war, but growing up with his mother, um, he didn't have black community growing up. And so he's very culturally Korean. And Mm -hmm. so immigrating to America, ironically to escape racism, I think, I have been one of the few or only people for him to process his blackness during this time. And, wow. you know, that being not the most comfortable position for me because I don't have the same lived experience as my dad. And yeah. so I was the one who told him and showed him the video of George Floyd getting murdered. And me 
you know, kind of forgetting that this was traumatizing for me to watch, but even more so for him, who mm. is more, he's like presenting, like, he's like, he's a visibly black person, you know? Right. And so yeah. him watching that and um, kind of breaking down and me trying my best to process his feelings with him um, has been something that um, I've navigated a lot with and actually has helped me be an advocate um, within Asian American, Asian communities um, and us tackling our own anti-blackness. The last question that I have for you, and we can, we'll move this around so it doesn't seem so like all over the place. Mm -hmm. Like we can start with your intro. Um, Do you think, uh, I I, I don't know, like what do you think is going to come of this? Like what do you think is going to come of CHOP? I know there's some debate internally about like, is this a huge bargaining chip that we have to get everything that we want? Or is this the start of a new society? You know, and I think both of those we can take seriously. You know, like, um, where do you think this goes? I don't think the organizers have quite figured out, like, it's it's also not the safest place to be. You know, it's also Mm -hmm. not like, for communities of color, especially, black and indigenous and brown queer trans folks in seattle that spot is not safe right and so when we're doing actions there and we're trying to figure out like how to keep our people safe it's it has been something that uh we've been really trying to navigate why why isn't it safe um oh Um, I think it's not safe because I think it's not like like we've mentioned. Um, this neighborhood does not belong to the 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 organizer who has the most at risk during this mo- movement. You know, we're not familiar with this space, and so you know, every thirty minutes, especially after Trump put out his tweets, et cetera, like we have a alert, alert, Proud Boys are coming to the hill. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, but, white yeah. right wing militias coming to chop and they're they're heavily armed and we're having to go on scanners and we're having to scout out like, is this true? Is this a real threat? You know, and that that part in itself where like if it was like in a location where we were familiar with and the neighborhood was our neighborhood, uh, but we were fighting for like a, a, a piece of housing or a piece of property that we're trying to convert into affordable housing, it'd be a different story because that's kind of more like the people's turf, you know? Well, because this place has been unfamiliar to us for a long time, security culture gets a little hard, you know? And I'm not going to lie. Like there, there are a lot of white burning man kind of people there at times. And to me, they all look like undercover cops. And I don't want that to be like the theme of the show, but like they either look like an undercover cop or they look like a uh, undercover proud boy and you know that that there's already so much trauma that communities of color have faced during this movement but especially from the police and so I, but I, I do think there's more and more um, evolution that's happening um, in this Occupy movement a couple of days ago some native elders just moved into the space 
and um, has occupied the middle of CHOP and daily do uh, prayers and um, drum circles and healing circles, etc. So we're, we're seeing some pretty cool stuff happening um, every day. Every day I always tell people the space looks a little different. Um, but I'm hoping the security culture can continue to change. So like you said, we can use it as a bargaining chip where we can push. The demands are everywhere on CHOP. It's written everywhere. It says defund yeah. police. Great. It says fund community solutions. It says free all protesters, which is um, the demand that we don't want to get lost in the narrative. And I think people don't talk about enough. Like we wouldn't be mm. in this position of leverage if it wasn't for the protesters on the ground. And we know how important it is. If we get the SPD defunded, but they say we're not releasing the protesters, we kind of feel like we're leaving them behind. And we don't want that to be the case. Okay, well, wow. yeah. Thanks, man. Thank, Thank you, you for so much. the time. And uh, yeah, we I, I know like 10 times as much about CHOP as we did before. And I still want to go. Gracias.